This episode may include sensitive stories, topics, or themes that may be difficult to hear. Please take care of yourself and your well-being should something arise for you. Welcome to the latest episode of Punk Therapy, Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness. I'm Dr. T, working on my PhD. And I'm the Truth Fairy, coming to you from the underground. Together we hope to inspire integrity, courage, kindness, creativity and rigor in the fast-growing industry of psychedelic healing. Welcome everyone to the next episode of Punk Therapy. Today we have an epic guest with us, Sky Otter. He's the founder of Sacred Earth Network, an international organization focusing on remembering sustainable culture and protecting indigenous traditions. Sky has made Russia a second home, having traveled there 44 times, assisting the environmental and indigenous movements through the Sacred Earth Network. Sky has over 25 years experience in re-evaluation counseling, Vipassana meditation, and has trained extensively with Siberian shamans. He has also spent much time in the US Southwest learning about native medicine ways. Sky has led hundreds of spiritual ecology workshops, including men's work, breath work, vision quests, and sacred journeys. And his book, Wild Earth, Wild Soul, A Manual for an Ecstatic Culture, has been met with high acclaim. Welcome, Sky. Thanks for being here with us. Great to be here. Hello, yeah. Sky. Hello, Dr. T. Hey, this hey. is the Truth Fairy. Hey, Truth Fairy. So, so Sky, I started reading your book and I couldn't help but stop in my tracks when I saw the poem or the prose that you selected by Rainer Maria Rilke. And I wonder if you'd indulge me to read it to you. I um, picked a quote from Susan Griffin's uh, extraordinary American writer to have at the beginning of my novel. And that quote guided me. It was kind of the guiding principle, the guiding beacon of my novel. And so I'm going to read this to you and I'd be curious to see what it brings up. Um, what 11 years, uh, 10 years later, it was exactly 10 years ago when this book was published in 2012. And again, just for our listeners, it's Wild Earth, Wild Soul, a manual for an ecstatic culture. And here is in the in introduction by Rainer Maria Rilke. All will come again into its strength. The fields undivided, the waters undammed, the trees towering and the walls built low. And in the valleys, people as strong and varied as the land. And no churches where God is imprisoned and lamented, like a trapped and wounded animal the houses welcoming all who knock and a sense of boundless offering 
in all relations and in you and me. No yearning for an afterlife, no looking beyond, no belittling of death, but only longing for what belongs to us and serving earth, lest we remain unused. Sky, this is a very potent prose for the beginning of your introduction. Could I ask how it impacts you hearing it right now? Um, well, when you got to the boundless offering part in you and me, I almost burst out crying. I haven't heard that. Uh, I, have, I haven't heard the the poem in probably about a month. And uh, if I ever want any inspiration, that's it. So I'm really delighted that you would read it right off the bat. And, you know, when I say cry, it's um, it's a good cry. It's a cry of of promise because when i really take that poem in it um it reinforces this sense of um like everything as crazy and chaotic as it all can seem sometimes there's this evolutionary destiny for humans um that you know again uh, has been and could be for quite some time a wild, uh, you know, just a, a crazy road. And at the same time, when I hear that poem, um, I find it so incredibly comforting and also very much of a North Star for everything that I'm about, everything that I love, everything that, you know, I want to convey to um yeah, to convey to, to the people, because, um, you know, we're the new kids on the block, evolutionarily speaking. And so um, we have these big brains and we need to learn how to use them. <laughs> if, if you don't mind, you've, you've touched on a couple of things right off the bat, uh, Dr. Teal. I, I'll promise to, to shut up and give you space. <laughs> but uh, there were a couple of things that I read last night that I thought I've got to ask you about this, and then uh, and then we'll we'll go back and forth. But answer whichever one you want because I'm fascinated in all three things. One of them that I really love about your introduction is you you're very clear that you're not some flake that's saying, "Oh, let's celebrate the Earth, let's celebrate each other, let's reconstruct culture, and everything's going to be okay." Um, but that you said that we're still going to go through hardship. So I'm wondering what it is that has supported your optimism that we are in fact involving in the midst of such chaos. That's question number one. And question number two, I'd like you to elaborate on a wildness a little bit more in whatever order yeah, you that, want to go in. Yeah. Um, it's, um, those are really great, great questions. Um, so I guess the real turning point in my life after having done, oh, maybe a half a dozen psychedelic trips from 15 years old to 21 and having a sort of um, rough, uh, rough adolescence like most of us and then, um, and then, you know, being, 
just being in a lot of psychic pain uh, that hadn't been resolved and and drinking too much, I was part of um, organizing for the second special disarmament rally in the UN in 1982. I've got it. I've got the whole story written down in my bio, but uh, the title of the story is where activism meets mysticism. And I just had a, I remember, <laughs> I remember being on the train uh, on the way up to this rally march demonstration in Central Park that actually at the time was by far the largest demonstration in American history and a million people showed up and it was about choosing life and it was so super epic and peaceful and having been to Viet anti-Vietnam war protests this was this was arguably the most peaceful day it was the most peaceful day of my life uh, up to 26 years of age and pro and possibly the most peaceful uh, since then. And so when I was uh, on that subway up there, I remember looking around and, and realizing I was having one of those, you know, just, you can't, disc you, you can't uh, explain when you know that a mystical experience without any psychedelics is underway and you're like, oh my God, what is going on here? And everything became archetypal and visionary and poetic and getting out of the subway there written on 56th street or whatever was the, you know, they, they, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and make, make war no more. Uh, Isaiah, uh, you know, and, you know, instead of that just being a kind of flip biblical saying, it was just like, boom, this, you know, the prophets weren't fooling around a couple of thousand years ago. And so, and then just coming into this stream of this, of this march with people who, whose signs are saying, um, you know, choose life and uh you know what is it what was that thing about et et the movie had just come home just come out and it was just like these connections between sort of like peace and the extraterrestrials and it you know it was i could spend the entire podcast talking to truth fairy and dr t about just this day because it, you know, it completely rocked my world, and then set the stage for everything to follow. And when you have, when a person has an epic experience like that, that opens up. Uh, I'll say one more thing: when the Japanese monks came in with their drums, um, who had, you know, were had relatives in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they just come in and they're just going boom, 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 like this ain't gonna happen. That was the feeling. This is not gonna happen. And um, this <laughs> now I'm really feeling it. It's like where life is too powerful. We're just not going to let this kind of thing happen. I mean, regardless of what right now back, you know, in terms of our conversation right now, regardless of what happens, 
in the future, it's like a mother bear uh, protecting her cubs. It's like you're not getting between, you know, between me and my cubs. And I think that's the that's the the bottom line, wouldn't you say? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Oh, my goodness. So many questions spring forth from that. But I guess maybe to take it into the second question, is this when your wildness began in the way that you see wildness? Uh, it's it's a great question and and kind of a funny one because I think that I'll spend uh, the rest of this lifetime and probably future lifetimes learning about the peacefulness that was gift, gifted to me as a sacred offering from the divine. Uh, but wildness, I think, is something that you know, growing up on the streets of Brooklyn. Uh, it was just in my blood, and my interestingly, my father, um, who had my my parents were divorced. He he lived about forty miles outside of New York City, and when I was growing up, uh, the, the those weren't even the suburbs; that was the country. And so I would go up there on the weekends, and uh, he would, you know, this this was when he was at his best, and he. You know, he had me running all over all over the forest and around this lake and so forth. And I think why I'm saying this is that my I think my own sense of wildness has to do with our own internal freedom, our own sense of spontaneity, our own sense of I'm okay. I was born in this body and it's a beautiful thing to be made out of this earth, made out of earth and stars. Um, and at the same time, I can never divorce that from the natural world. And so when I'm, I'm connected to the natural world, my, my wildness flows and, you know, I, 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 I um, the next uh, podcast I do I was asked by the the interviewer what I wanted to title it, and I said I want the title to be "Wildness is Our Birthright." Wonderful, thank you. I feel that, and um, it's making me. I want to ask you about what we were talking about before this idea of indigeneity. You know, because I I think about this often, and and I feel like conflicted in my identity and you know on the one hand I'm like you know we are all indigenous in one sense but on the other in another sense we're also a lot of us are total newcomers in a way to the ecology of our particular piece of land and, and I would just love to hear you said that you this is something that you've been reflecting on and thinking about this notion of indigeneity and and what where you've come to with that reflection well, I'll just say before I t talk to that is, you know, you guys are rocking it with the questions and help me to flow naturally into uh, all of the things that I love the most. And, and so clearly wildness and indigeneity or naturalness uh, are, are, are real uh, wild true nature they're all kind of they're all part of our our natural human inheritance 
And, you know, another thing we could talk about for the entire podcast and longer is, you know, so what the hell happened with patriarchy and colonialism and how, you know, a whole group of people just essentially decided that they they wanted to move into you know what has been called a kind of dominator mode of consciousness that uh instead of a a kind of ba- balance and cooperation as being a kind of le- core values uh it was more about yeah, how we can take over, dominate, and tell other people how we want to run life. And so, in the case of both uh, U.S. and similarity in what happened, what happened um, to the Native people in both uh, in uh, in both cases. And so here we are, uh, children of of settlers or immigrants in my case, um, and it's like here we are in this relatively new new land. If we have genes from Europe, it's like what the hell is going on here? And so here we are born into ancestrally a new landscape. And and so I think that one of the reasons we're having this conversation in the first place is, is very much about, okay, so here we are, uh, we're not really going anyplace, and so what are we going to do about it? And one of the things that we do about it as white-skinned people is really, really learn the land as best we can, learn from the land, and outreach to Native people and ask them how they see the land, where where are their core values. And since you read my book, you'll know that, or are reading it, one of the chapters is listening. So just to conclude with your question about indigeneity, we want to be listening as opposed to that whole dominator v- mode of, of being, which is just to tell everybody what it is that we believe and what we think. So going into listening mode uh, with humility and listen to the land and listen to the people who lived there originally. I think that right there is a, is a, <laughs> in, in basketball, it's a kind of a slam dunk formula for success if we're really, really willing to 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 do it. And and in a sense, us, you know, this is saying this somewhat facetiously, us smart Westerner Westerners need to sort of put aside put aside those big brains a little bit. And of course, not use not losing our faculty for critical thinking, but just saying, wait a minute, I don't really know everything here, and all that stuff I was taught, you know, I'll take it with a what is it, a grain of salt, and I'll just, just, uh, yeah, humble myself um, before Mother Earth and the Aboriginal peoples, 
and and learn and learn learn from the earth and learn from them and you know again still using our critical thinking knowing that aboriginal people are human beings too but i think if we have that intention we're gonna you know we're gonna change things radically and in a relatively short period of time and i and i could and i'll just end this the answer to the, the a long answer to this question is just simply that I think we're actually well on our way, which touches on what you were asking about my optimism. I've seen a lot of really amazing things happen between natives and non-natives just over 20, 22 years, which is like a fraction. You know, it's a, it's a nanosecond in terms of even human history. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's it's like it's uh, it's nice to reflect on how long you know the history of humanity. And I, I was reading an article the other day that said that one of the first humans was around two hundred thousand years ago. And it sort of seems that for the next hundred and I don't know ninety odd thousand years, that largely we lived in like super egalitarian, super um, different mode of of life and consciousness, and it's only a like super recent change that has led to this dominator culture. So it's almost like our hard a hardwire a hardware is is good for this kind of um, reciprocity way of living. Um, but we've got this dominator software that we've a lot of us anyway have inherited inherited relatively recently, and it wouldn't take a lot to kind of to come out of that. And yeah, I'm I'm fascinated about that because you know I'd love to go and live somewhere that's a more sustainable way and a more community based way of living. But I'm wondering what skills will I need to be able to operate in a, in a place like that? And one of the things that I that I've read about or that I've been interested in lately is a thing called nonviolent communication as a method of removing the dominator language from the way that, that we speak because we often um, speak in a way that carries an essential message or game of, of who's right and who's wrong. And so NVC is, is a method that's about kind of trying to unpick that tendency and start to speak in a new language, which is more, yeah, amenable to community-style living. Anyway, I went on a bit of a tangent there, but uh, if I, I can, can see that the truth on... fairy has something to say. <laughs> I want to piggyback on something you're saying and piggyback on something Sky's saying, both of you, Do Dr. T and Sky. Okay, I wonder if I can hold the thread of this. So the, the dominator worldview, as I understand it, is relatively recent, 10,000 years with the advent of the agricultural revolution. Um, that is a lot of time, but not a lot of time in the, the wider spectrum. And I've often wondered, is that when the huge disconnect happened, you know, for the uh, the fields undivided, the waters undammed, you know, from Rainer Maria Rilke, is that when the disconnect started? And then I want to kind of link it into the way that dominator worldview is getting into the psychedelic industry right now, where there's this sense uh -huh. that people can take a medicine to dominate a, a trauma or dominate a problem. I see it a lot is that we just do them to get to the medicine. Let's do it. 
Yeah, another comment is that there's this fascination that people have that they take psychedelics and all of a sudden nature looks so beautiful and they're, they're seeing the moss in a way they hadn't seen it. And they have this connection with nature that they just didn't have. And all of a sudden it's this psilocybin that's done this for them. And I'm kind of wondering about the, the disconnect. I'm wondering about when did we lose our connection to nature? Uh, do we need psilocybin in order to find that connection back to nature? Is there a way that we could do other practices that enhance that connection that psilocybin does for us? Like, you know, I, I'm worried about how psilocybin is being dominated. So there's a lot of sort of comments, jump on whatever. <laughs> Well, I just, again, appreciate both of you. Um, and I, I think that, you know, you bo you're both saying, yeah, you're both saying the things that I've been thinking about and talking about for a long time. I'm, I'm somewhat reticent. I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm leaving it to other people. And, you know, one of the, a game changer book for me was Ishmael by Dan Quinn, which really goes into the roots of the, the roots of the, yeah, isolation, separate self, uh, dominator culture. They all kind of go, uh, together, um, uh, you know, that argument about the agricultural revolution is a good one. And at the same time, the Hopis and uh, uh, there are there are and the and the pastoral uh, farmers uh, and uh, pastoral cultures in Central Asia, all you could say uh, to some degree have learned at different times how to live in balance with nature. So it's not necessarily you know, that agriculture, boom, uh, leads to this sense of separation. But again, I think that for, and you know, for listeners, I'm the guy who wants, you know, I want to learn that sort of as a, you know, what's the word? L like, that's a great academic course for the future. Like, how did we get into this mess? What I'm about and what Wild Earth, Wild Soul is about and what the Wild Earth Intensive about you know, is really what you're, you're, you know, what is implied in your question, which is, I'll just say very definitively, I don't think that any psychoactive substances are necessary for us to have a full-blown sense of ultra connection to one another and to the earth as one living system and one package. And I have experienced it so many times without psychedelics that I want people to see that psychedelics are like a really great complementary medicine, if you will, and, and, and a good kick in the ass. I mean, there's no question about, about their high octane ability to get us out of stubborn ruts and, and make us look at things in new ways. But, you know, I'm with you 100%, like, you know, commercializing them, using them in a manipulative way, trying to profit off of them. That's all part of the dominator system. And so I think that, you know, how we met in terms of the psychedelic cafe is, is sort of like 
to me, psychedelics are just this subset of this larger evolution of consciousness that's underway. And I would, what would, you know, I would suggest, or, you know, I think my book is, is trying to make the argument that the, the task before us is really to learn how to bring greater and greater and greater connection between ourselves. Uh, you know, we could say it in three ways. You know, our internal worlds, our, our, um, our connection with each other as humans. Um, and yes, NVC is a really good practice for that amongst many. And, uh, and our and I and, and our connection to the earth and and just one little thing in that re, that run on scent is that to me the nature connection in some ways is kind of the to me is the game changer because I think we're we're sort of like with the digital age and with Western academic thought we we sort of like we have this sort of conditioned, yeah, it's pretty. And I like the way the trees are and I could even hug them once in a while. And the flowers are beautiful. And I like the clouds and, you know, it's like the birds, the birds, I love their chirp and stuff, but it's just like, there's a, there, and, and I, I see that in myself. So I'm not judging anybody for it. And, and what I've been so fortunate to experience in my lifetime is like, wait a minute, that's like this tiny little beginning step in terms of our, um, yeah, be, be in our nature connection is there's just so much more. And so I want to invite everybody that I know to step into together into that larger you know the the the, the Lakota say metakwio asset oh yes and all my relations all our relations to step into that big picture connection with all life as an ex, as a felt experience not something that we we chat about philosophically what are, what are those next steps what how do we how do we take it deeper for those of us that are you know sitting at home in a, you know maybe in an office or on the bus on the way to work and you know there's maybe there's somewhere that's close to us that is more deeply in nature how what what are these next steps that that you would offer up for somebody to take um well the 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 the, the first step is to consciously breathe the precious air that's given to us as a practice and i'm 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 very serious about that because there's a way we can say to each other or you know like oh well we'll get out there and we'll do a wild earth intensive wild earth intensive and then we'll get to you know get to that thing and yes that intensive is just what it's designed for but i don't want to wait around for that so i want to breathe consciously i want to go out and uh and learn about, I want, to, I want to make a conscious decision to really learn about what's in my local landscape. And I want to learn about that with other people so that I'm not just doing it by myself. So I would say at a very, 
you know, like let's say yoga and meditation have become these very big, relatively big practices in spiritual circles. I would just like to say, hey, let's get together and and nature connect. Let's gather around the fire. You know, you guys are having spring coming up, so there's more outdoor time. I'm trying to think as a, as as I as I think about your question that in my book are all these exercises and all these practices for accessing this connected nature connected people connected mode of consciousness that you don't have to do a whole wild earth intensive but you start and i think that's my point here which is that we shouldn't intimidate we shouldn't get intimidated by when we start realizing, oh shit, we're so disconnected, you know, where do we even start? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I, someone told me about, I can't remember the name, but an author or a prolific writer or someone who who has passionately gone about the endeavor of getting to know their local habitat and who lives in total suburbia. And so like, I, I do this all the time where I think in order to connect to nature, I have to drive, you know, 100 k's this way you know um but actually there's so much life in my my little neighborhood and unique to this little like area or neck of the woods there's these birds and these trees and and actually you could totally get into nature connection here because we are in i guess you know we're, we're in it all the time <laughs> <laughs> that's it I, right there <laughs> that's, yeah, the, a... that's the satori moment right there we're it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so funny because I was the one that said last week, you know, everyone has a really cool sighting. I'm the one that never gets messages from nature or the universe. And I was a little bit pissed. And I said, okay, nature, okay, universe, I want a sign because, you know, my husband's the one that walks down the street and sees someone walking a huge pet pig. I never see these things, right? Or he's the one that sees some sort of bird of prey attacking a rabbit, like a bunch of bird of prey attacking. I never see these things. So last week, after I asked for some direct communication, I saw a lynx right next door where there's a construction zone beside my studio and there was a lynx standing right at the end of a medicine session that I had finished facilitating. My client and I walked out right at the end of her session and together we were just our skin, our hair standing on end. There was a beautiful lynx staring out at us. So it's incredible when you ask with sincerity that it might show up. But, you know, speaking of this nature connection sky, I've been really like chomping on the bit to ask you some questions about shamans in Siberia. And I, I just want to sort of begin this question by saying it's a really sad day in Kiev today. There was a brazen attack by Putin on the citizens of Kiev and, uh, you know, such a profoundly traumatized culture and one in which shamans for, for decades under uh, oppressive communist rule, <laughs> oppressive communist rule, um, were unable or had to very quietly practice their traditions. And I'm really interested and fascinated uh, in two things. When you met these shamans in Siberia, and how, however much you feel is okay to share, I also respect very much you know, the, the privacy and keeping sacred your time with them, but sort of how they found their way out and coming back 
after sort of repressive regimes almost eradicated their traditions. That's that kind of part one. And then how your time with these Siberian and Russian shamans have influenced your work with uh, psilocybin ceremony, if you would be willing to kind of delve into that. Well, that's a, that's a big full question. If there ever was one, um, uh, I, th- I, I, but at the same time, um, you were really reading my mind about how I was tracking this conversation, which is that, so the landscape is made up of seen and unseen. And so we approach the landscape with our full presence and our, our, our senses. But at the same time, those of, those of us who have experienced the unseen, if you the spiritual, if you will, and 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 another way of saying it, the shamanic uh, view of reality of of that there is, that in a sense you could say that the whole seen world is just the tip of the iceberg, um, and and in a sense that tip of that iceberg is being fed from the earth below and from the sky above. So we just see with our eyes the the tip of the iceberg, but when we start opening up our spiritual faculties, our shamanic faculties, uh, we start to feel that incredible oceanic depth below and the cosmic cosmic the 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 the, the cosmos in in you know j- just touching into the infinity that is there. And so, you know, you you brought up a you brought up a, a, a it sort of one could say the the kind of political issue of our time that I quite frankly uh, over the last seven or eight months I've probably spent more time delving into Russian and Ukrainian history relationships everything that's going on i've been on you know zooms and all sorts of conversations with my both russian and ukrainian colleagues you know basically like what the hell is going on and what are we going to do about it so you know it, it, the question is very very provocative and you know the connecting piece is and i think you know like Certainly, you could. There are plenty of people who would argue with this supposition, but I would, I would like to say that Putin's authoritarian and fascistic aggression right now, both towards his own people and the Ukrainians, um, is the, is a, is is an example of how we started off the conversation, which is just the. You know, the, uh, it's a, an acute form of the dominator culture of I'm going to I'm going to make a land grab and it's going to restore our imperial rule. And he's actually said that in no uncertain terms. It was first it was denazification. And now it's like, actually, we're we're sort of pissed that the USSR and the Russian Empire are not as. Uh, you know, whatever we don't we don't think about them in such great, great. You know, we're, we're 
we're, we're not the empire we want to be, so we need to expand. So I could go on again. We could talk about that for the rest of the podcast. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because of what you, you asked about the shamans. And it's sort of like, so the shamans historically are the people who see and heal with the unseen world using by communicating with having a deep felt relationship with the unseen part of nature and they're historically they're they're indigenous to their lands and so if we look back in that you know i think it's you know i don't know let's just call it i hate to think it's 10,000 years old and i'm i'm i feel more comfortably saying comfortable saying 5,000 years of of patriarchy if we if we look at it in those terms it's always been the shamans are the ones that are also uh often leaders elders uh even even political leaders in their their tribes and their nations and they're uh, they're often the first ones to get picked up, picked off, uh, put down, exterminated by wh- whatever c- colonialist, pick your awful dominator word, uh, imperialist uh, forces come in and put the shamans down. And 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 I think what's most insidious, most insidious. Dr. T and Truth Fairy is what's most insidious is that it's more of a mind fuck in the sense of saying that the shamanic worldview is is primitive in the bad sense of the world word that it's inferior that it's just sort of like nonsense and we should just get on with it and get on with like western progress and thinking and just put them aside once and for all. And I think that as I'm speaking, I realize that even though in our circles, we're like, rah, rah, the shamanic worldview is pretty cool and I want to investigate it further. Yet at the same time, I think that that myth of progress is still super, super, super strong and would put down native peoples whether they're white black brown yellow or whatever in a in a heartbeat if they if if the dominator culture felt any threat political otherwise by native peoples it's amazing to me how easily some people dismiss indigenous worldviews i had a conversation with someone who i'm quite close with the other day who referred to indigenous culture as simple and and i think they meant it in that derogatory way and i was taken aback i was just so surprised that somebody who was still so close to my circle held a view that to me is very out of touch with reality but i think is quite shared because until you've seen it, until you've started to peek behind the curtains and see this unseen world, then then I can see how perhaps you might see these cultures and, the, and these ways of living as simple, but it's just not not the case. That, well, that's what we know, but yeah, how do we change people's perspective on this is something I'm wondering right now. I didn't answer your question about the Siberian shamans per se, and I, I will... I can say that there is no 
direct connection in my experience between the all of the shamans that I've met over there and psychoactive substances. There are, for people who do their research, we'll see that in the Russian Far East, there's ingestion and ceremony around Amanita muscaria, but um, that's not something that I've been involved with and is not something that is done in central Siberia and Mongolia, which is where my experience uh, lies. Siberian shamanism, really simply put, is raw, primordial, supernatural connection to the universe. Uh, that that's what the ceremonies and the practices are really all about. It's like earth, fire, air, water, spirit, one, one, like you can't call it a thing, but something that rocks your bones, you know, like any of those fire ceremonies that I've done over there have been every bit as powerful in their own way as any psychedelic journey I've ever been on. And how has it informed the way you hold psychedelic ceremony? Or has it? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm about laughing. to find out, I think. I, <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm laughing because up until your question, in some ways, they've never been, they, they've never been in one conversation with me, with, for me. They've just been two beautiful aspects of my own experience. Yeah, I'd really like to know if... Your experience in this uh, Siberian shamanic tradition has influenced the way that you hold, you know, psilocybin or psychedelic ceremony in in your country. Shamanism in general and Siberian shamanism in particular have just made me more courage, more courageous, more full of courage, more courageous, more will more willing to go deep and penetrate reality as it's uh, as it's um, penetrate and receive reality as it's unfolding in my experience. And, you know, essentially going beyond things that my mind might say, you don't want to go there. And, and so a sort of, uh, I think it's helped me have a courage during the to to um, lead a uh, a mushroom ceremony in such a way where I'm willing to maybe do things and go to places that I may I like yeah you know it's a great question <laughs> sort of like I feel I feel them I feel the so I, you know relative to my life experience you know maybe I've spent a total of like three or four months with Siberian shamanism when you add it all up. Uh, You know, it's not like I've been training there for years or anything like that. But in those three or four months, I feel them, the ones that are living, the ones that are, 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 are not in embodied form right now. Um, and I feel their strength and their courage and their power and their commitment and and so that I think that just helps me be a better ceremonialist when it comes to the mushrooms. But there's no direct sort of correlation, if you will, other than super amounts of gratitude for all that we've been given as a in a in a you know 
wow, like when you said it about like, oh, wow, you know, you know, essentially you, you said we are nature. And when we have that sense of, oh, yeah, we are nature, it's just such a, let such a, a such a game changer. And those Siberian shamans are kind of really, they're, they're always saying to me, like, let's cut the bull and let's get down to it uh, in terms of how we interact with each other and with 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 nature you know i just love their wildness to bring it bring it around to the beginning of this conversation dr t do you have something you want to ask uh not at the moment i'm 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 really i'm loving this conversation and i really appreciate what you're saying i am i'm curious but again, you know, aware of protecting your experiences and your relationship there. But I'd love to, you know, for an image to be painted of what it actually was like to be there with these these shamans. Um, I have an image which is starting to come into my mind already, and I, I feel that that fierceness and that commitment and that cut the ball powerful kind of presence that I feel like you're talking about. Um, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, you, ne, ne, neither one of you are 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 stepping into what I would consider sort of. You don't speak about it sacred territory, or you know, sacred as in secret. Like if there's something I'm not supposed to share, I won't share it. I I think that the first thing that comes to my mind is picture uh, a kind of step uh, effect that I'm tr- like I think landscape uh is as close to a siberian landscape as i have seen um you know this wide open spaces with mountains in the distance there's a there's a there's a fire you know there's a fire and anywhere a, a, a fire and anywhere from 10 15 20 100 150 people will gather around and and shamans the siberian shamans usually have these like i'm i i i don't have one handy but we're not doing a video thing here but so you know listeners can just look up how big the siberian uh, siberian shamans drums are and by the way um, it's about 50-50 men and women, which is quite remarkable, uh, at, at, which is one of the things that I love in terms of who who are the shamans. And so, the, the, you know, they're either, you know, let's say usually it's like one, but sometimes maybe three or four will be making these incredible offerings to this beautiful rather large fire and the offerings will be milk and candy and i was thinking that sometimes they even have had um you know they eat a lot of mutton so they're 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 gonna have a sheep that's gonna get sacrificed for people to eat but some of it is going to end up first and foremost as an offering to the fire you know there's lots of other things that will go into that fire as 
feeding this being this fire isn't just like this thing it's a creature it's a being it's a it's something that is treated with love and respect and as that fire is 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 uh flaming and um and the drums are are beating and sometimes people will join in the in some kind of song that they all know but that and i mean this is this touches right back into a critical part of our conversation which i haven't really said because it's so obvious which is community unity and connection that 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 kind of ceremony that I'm just describing is facilitating community and unity is built into the word community. That unifying experience is what, in a sense, the ceremony is is building spiritual strength and resilience and vitality among among the people. And, you know, you can say like, like how can they so many indigenous cultures have kept on with all this imperial domination have kept on against all odds how do they do it and uh, you know i'll i hope some native person can hear me say that the answer i've got is you know is 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 ceremony with a big with a big c and that's just uh you know that's one example of many different kinds of ceremony to unify and and provide vitality for the people you know um sky i'm i'm thinking about one of our original conversations when i first invited you to come and uh, speak on our podcast uh, one of the topics we discussed is why some people don't heal from trauma. It's been on my mind since you're talking about community, unity, and connection, and vitality, and strength, and the beating of the drum and the fires. But in in your experience, in your working with people and knowing people, wh- what's your take on why some people can't or won't or un- or unable or or don't access it? It's a great question. And I anticipated your question when I was in the shower earlier today. And I, and I thought, I, you know, I'd never rehearse any answers. I've just like, I wonder what they'll say. And I love, I love responding spontaneously. And this, this one, I thought, I thought, I thought through a little bit. And, um and and what I love about where chronologically in this conversation you've asked the question uh, is that I I I feel like um, you know we've touched on the the larger reason why uh, it's so difficult for people some people to let's say, move along in their healing journey in such a way that they're not suffering so badly. I mean, we all suffer, you know, unless we're, you know, experiencing unity consciousness 24-7, which is not very many people on the planet, I believe, are, then then that means we're going to experience bouts of separation and experience suffering from 
time to time. But the healing journey to me is largely about feeling our connectedness uh, and our sense of all rightness and our just our sense of we're okay in our own skin. And it's a it's a continuum as we learn how to connect at deeper, deeper and deeper, deeper levels. Um, and the answer that came to me in the shower is who the hell am I to say where any, you know, like where anybody else is on their journey in terms of like what it looks like to heal. Certainly from my from from my experience, all I know is about my own healing, not really uh, about anybody else's, unless they tell me, and I love when this happens in in uh, you know healing sessions that I that I provide for people is you know when they say to me, "Oh my God, you know, I just feel like I've." I've let go of of a monster weight and I'm just feeling so much lighter and more connected and I'm feeling better about my relationships with other people, blah, 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 blah. Then, okay, you know, we can use that as a marker for healing. But, um, you know, this is a long way of saying, I wanna look at everybody with compassion and empathy and I and I just, you know, like who's to say, you know, you, you know, people do the best they can. We who love, you know, we're lovers, right? So we, we love the idea of other people not suffering. But one of the reasons why we're here is to help alleviate suffering. We do it because it's part of our journey in this lifetime to, to, to help other people because we've been helped by other people. But if somebody comes along and it's just like they they say that they're not making the progress they want to be making, you know, or they don't they feel like it's just intractable. Um, you know, I, I think that I mean, this is a little bit beyond what you're asking, but I think that ultimately we can just love them and accept them and and uh, provide the tools that we've learned but we can't, you know, just to, to finish what, how I started, which is like, it's so important to not look at them as broken in any way or think that there's something wrong with them, uh, but to hold them in the light, knowing that they're on their journey. And who knows, you know, it, who, it could take, I mean, I, lifetimes and reincarnation is something that who knows what that me- really even means? I mean, you know, it's a it's a belief, uh, but 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 ultimately, I think uh, I think the spirit is about infinite infinite patience and infinite compassion of of people on their journey. So maybe that isn't exactly kind of what you were looking for, um, but that's uh, that's the best I got for now coupled with what we were talking about before about the healing power of community i was thinking about this the other the other day actually this idea that you know we all suffer we all experience pain and then in turn we also all have a choice to make in response to that a really fundamental choice of of kind of saying yes to life and signing up for it or saying no to life 
And that's, that is a choice that we all have to make. And I know that some people don't choose yes. And I, I don't want to make that wrong, but I do want to sort of express the sense of gratitude that I felt recently for the people who do endure great suffering and still choose to say yes, because those people expand what it means to be human and to live a beautiful life. And, and that's, yeah. And I feel great, grateful for those people because they help me to feel resilient in the face of, of challenge in life. I sort of want to bring into this conversation because it's really important to me. You know, I, I do remember distinctly a time in my life where I was on a path of destruction, which was really complex trauma and post-traumatic stress and didn't know those terms at that time. I just thought I was a fucked up mess and completely flawed. And and I knew that I had a very traumatized family um, or I didn't really know, but I understand that now. And and there there was a day where I said, I'm going to need to choose life. And I, and I did. And I also want to just offer compassion and empathy to those that find themselves doing very well for a long time. And all of a sudden, uh, they land in a huge ditch that they didn't even know was there because this happened to me last year. I, you know, had seven great years of flow and uh, optimism, and it was, certainly there was difficulty in between there. But but the general sense of it was it w- was excitement about life. I felt like I'd arrived at home, and just as I had arrived at home. I was taken out at the knees by, an, by a, a very particular incident. Someone looked at me in a particular way, spoke to me in a certain way. It was, you know, sort of on the heels of COVID. The world was turning upside down. You know, we, you know, we were in isolation. Fortunately, I'm with an extraordinary human, my husband. However, um, I found myself in a place where so many things accumulated. There was an accumulation. There was some financial stress. I was moving. We were building a new place. Uh, uh, several, couple of um, sort of uh, enactments with a couple of clients. And before I knew it, I found myself in flo- full-blown PTSD and didn't know it. And I, it, it, it was as a, as a facilitator of, of psychedelic assisted therapy, there was a huge amount of shame for me and a sense that, oh my, and I'm a very good actor because I've spent many years on stage acting. I could bracket what was happening as I was working with clients. And then as soon as it was done, I was back in this essentially feeling terrorized in my own body. It, it felt like the enemy within the war within and the impact on my nervous system was off the charts. Like this is the way I used to live, but I was so used to living like that. I didn't know it, but as, as a, you know, facilitator and therapist now, I was full-blown connected to like feeling like I was electrocuted, like there were, like, like there were uh, bullets in my brain, that there was an explosion of volcanoes inside. I was, every single night it was terrifying to go to sleep because I didn't know how long I'd be staring at the sky. And it was like, now I understand full-blown P- PTSD. I have a, a, a sense of empathy, like embodied empathy in a way that I've never had. But what was really difficult and, and hard to admit, but I want to admit that I did wake up not wanting life anymore. I could not go on. No matter how hard I worked, you know, I did medicine work. I did a lot of work with 5-MeO-DMT. It just kept opening up more and more. I had extraordinary therapists that I'm still working with. But it was like this endless feeling of it's going to go on like this forever. And I would not, at that point, I would not have wanted to say that to anybody except to my husband that, 
I'm afraid I'm going to be stuck here forever. This is, this is it. This is the one I'm not going to come out of. I, I want to offer empathy to those people that find themselves in that place where all of a sudden they're blindsided and you go, this is the one that's going to take me under. This is the one I'm not going to come out of. And there were times where I was seriously thinking, you know, it was hard to say it to my husband, but I said, like, you know, I'm really thinking about how to, how to end this now. And, and it was hard to admit it, but I had to admit it to somebody. And at the same time, also knowing that, that there was no way I was going to leave him alone. Um, so I'm I, like in, in reflection here, I'm trying to review like those people that get stuck in the ways that we get stuck. I'm still trying to put together what it is that pulled me out, you know, that helped. Like, obviously it was consistent work. I knew to do my consistent work. Even my somatic meditation felt like lying in a bed of fire some days, <laughs> you know, and, and that the wisdom accumulated from going through this, I, I would never trade it in. But it's, you know, I mean, like, I want to say to people, there's nothing at times that we can say or do in those moments. There is nothing because nothing works. Nothing feels like you just feel like you're in a a full on assault, like a a citizen of Kiev right now, and you're waiting for the assault to stop and you don't know how it's going to stop. So I really want to bring empathy to those situations. Like, how do we keep the faith? I don't know how I did. You know, I actually, I actually do know, I'm going to, I just figured it out. What kept, what kept me going, (laughs) thank you, I figured it out. What kept me going were intimate moments with clients and watching them healing, like witnessing their healing and being in that connectivity with them, the intimacy of medicine session, knowing what I needed to do to show up, even feeling the way I did and seeing the light or crying with a client or seeing their healing, their healing inspired me to keep going and find my way through this. Yeah, that's what it was. Anybody who's been there, you know, in in uh, when I first started doing LSD, we would call that a satanic bummer that does not go away. Does not go away when the trip wears off. And I'm I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, but since I've been since I've been there, I know, you know, I know exactly what you're saying. And one of the interesting things about all suffering experiences when you decide to say yes to life is everything is a teaching on compassion. So now that, you know, I think I can speak quite well for the three of us now that we've been really good and kicked in our butt in certain ways we can be really beautiful bodhisattvas for people who are coming are suffering in that way and just the way that you said that whoever is listening it's like the vibe is you can get through this don't beat on yourself for being in that really rough place and i think you brought up something which is you know, a constant lifesaver um, when when people understand that when you're when you've decided you want to be in service to other people, it it changes your whole sort of vibrational outlook. And so you in your selflessness towards them, 
that's that's that was part of what I understood you saying was part of your uh, change. You know, change. It, isn't that what part of what you were saying towards the end? Yeah, yeah. It's seeing the courage in my clients' eyes was enough for me to remember that I had some left, and and that we were in it together. I mean, really, we were. Even though I they, I, I didn't let on. I didn't let anybody really know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> had to bracket that one. Yeah, and, and the practices, I mean, I, you know, you speak of the practices, the practices of seeing our environment every day. But for me, it was the practice of, you know, lying in the fire of my somatic meditation, hoping and praying that I might feel my feet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then the, the switch could go off and I see the client arriving and I'm going, ah, yes, this person has shown up. They want to do some deep healing. I owe it like it's not an owing, but it's a it's a it's a reciprocity. You know, it, it is a reciprocity or or even the sense that, oh, my God, you're willing to entrust me with this right now. You you damn well. Right. I'm going to show up for you because in showing up for you, I'm showing up for myself as well. Dr. T, I love the way you synthesize things. You've got this extraordinary brain for synthesizing complex uh, things. And I would first of all, I'd like to know if you have any more questions of Sky, And secondly, if you would be willing to synthesize the juice of our conversation today, because <laughs> you're so good at that. I, I always uh, have this little moment of envy. I'm like, oh, Dr. T, kind of like a crush on you for being so good at that. I just feel uh, really heartened by, by that little sharing just then um, for myself, for anyone you know, who's been through a challenging time is currently going through one or no doubt will eventually come across one again. You know, it's a, it's a part of life and it's really heartening to to hear other people share so honestly and vulnerably their dark moments, their dark nights of the soul. <clears throat> so thank you. Thank you for that. And I also just feel really like connected to my own heart and wildness right now. And I, I feel an aliveness to that, that this conversation has really sparked for me. Um, in terms of synthesizing, I'm, I'm really not sure. We've, we've gone through a lot of different territory around this journey that we are all on in reclaiming our Indigenous hearts and finding our way back to a sustainable and a reciprocal way of living that's connected to to the spirit of the land um and yeah I, i'm just excited for all of us who are on this journey because i right now i'm feeling hopeful from this conversation that's how i feel and 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 i'm really excited about bringing that hope into the work that i do and about yeah finding my own connection to nature it is there anything, Sky, that you want to finish off with or any, any ending notes for us? You two are really smart sweethearts, and I'm really honoured and humbled to be in conversation with you. And I really understand at a, another level what, what, you know, what is called synergy or, you know, a sense of... Uh, really, really listening into each other's hearts and uh, reaching higher ground, if you will, or deeper ground. So I, I'm just loving that. So I want to make sure that I say that first. And the only thing that I would want to add to the conversation 
about about the ancestors like underneath um my medicine painting is a, an ancestor altar and i just you know i i just got out of the sweat lodge uh two days ago a very powerful sweat and and i had this unexpected healing with my grandmother who my mother had held resentment towards her whole life and so i unconsciously i unconsciously held resentment towards my my grandmother because i was so loyal to my mother and in the sweat lodge um i felt this matrilineal line of light coming from my heart to my mom through my grandmother in a kind of like and i i really could I, i'll cry at the beginning and cry at the end which is that i just felt this beautiful healing of my jewish ancestry on my mother's my, my matrilineal jewish line of like a, a kind of homecoming and a, and a, just a sense of of now it is complete and uh you know and it just uh, it's uh complete in its obviously incompleteness but we i think we know what i'm talking about this line of light that uh is now being felt as unbroken and and so just not forget not forgetting the ancestors in this conversation and how you know all the shamanic traditions are always talking about healing uh not just kind of with with our parents but with our with our ancestors as well wonderful i as you as you're speaking uh sky i just had this synthesizing thought <laughs> that throughout this conversation i think a, a theme has kind of come out that not none of us had planned which is the strength and resilience of the human spirit you know from that moment that you had um your moment of sacred activism when everybody all united in a in a in a single and clear no we're not doing this through to the shamans of the siberian uh, uh desert who have survived this oppressive regime with such strength and determination and and resiliency with such a powerful connection to the land to to your personal story truth fairy um of of burnout and ptsd and and your struggle and um uh, and then to to our ancestors and this story of our of where we've come from you know and how how we who we are who we come from and so yeah i just feel really inspired by the strength and resiliency of the human spirit from this conversation so thank you both so much for that i'd love to offer a little short prose reading to kind of read us out. We read us in, I'm going to read us out. This is from a uh, book called Embers by Richard, Wag Richard Wagamese, who is uh, an Ojibwe uh, from Northwestern Ontario. And he is one of Canada's foremost authors and storytellers. He has now moved on to other realms. He's dead, let's <laughs> just say that. <laughs> it's, I know there's that word dead that we don't want to use, but I just use it. 
just offer it to the people of Russia and the Ukraine today and to all of us. It goes like this. For you today, my friends, I raise sacred smoke. For you who are troubled, confused, doubtful, lonely, afraid, addicted, unwell, bothered or alone, I raise sacred smoke. For those of you in sorrow, grief or pain, I raise sacred smoke. For those of you who work for people, for change, for spiritual evolution, for the upward and outward growth of our common humanity and the well-being of our planet, I raise sacred smoke. For those of you in joy, in the glow of small or great triumphs, who live in love, faith, courage, and respect, I raise sacred smoke. And in the act of all of this, I raise it also for myself. And thank you to Richard Wagamese for writing this beautiful prayer to Sky Otter for your boundless wisdom and heart. And to Dr. T, my one of my favorite companions, for your beautiful heart and your extraordinary curiosity and your gentle way of being with questions. It's really great to be in this space with you in a continued way. So thank you for this conversation. And this is Truth Fairy signing off. That concludes this episode. We hope you found it meaningful and integrative. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and kindly share the link with your friends and colleagues. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at info at punktherapy.com. And remember to punk your inner wisdom. <laughs>